All right. We're live. Thank y'all for tuning on <laughs> on YouTube to your journey. Yeah. And this is, well, it's not in your journey anymore. It is my podcast, though. But thank you for tuning in to Andrew Love. And I'm here to talk to a guy in Africa, uh, on Wara, if I pronounce his name correctly. Um, he go tell a lot about the history of slavery and a little bit uh, about the, the homie, the homie tribe, the truth about it all. Uh, unfortunately, you know how we American, how in America, black people have been whitewashed and lies, deception when it comes to history. I would like to fabricate things and make things sound not as bad, as, <laughs> you, know, you know, just to appease the black people. And this guy right here, he's he's very well rounded, and, and he since he isn't African, he know the difference between, uh, he know a lot about the history of slave in Africa and the history of slave in America and the differences, and a lot of true stuff that a lot of people don't get in your public schools unless you do research made from library or social media sites. No, well, I ain't gonna say social media sites, more like you know library or somewhere like that. Or look up other resources to, uh, to get truth, unlike what they feeding us, um in the mainstream America and everywhere else. And so uh, what I thought I noticed, um, if I pronounce your name right, you can repronounce it, uh, Aurora. Aurora, uh, tell a little bit about yourself, what you got going on. Hey, because I'm going to share all your links. I know you do films and stuff, so tell the public about yourself and um, and why you do what you do. Now, I think it's very important to give people a little brief background about yourself. Okay. First of all, let me say thank you for having me on your show. Uh, good evening to everybody who's watching. My name is Honora Abwa. Uh, I'm a, uh, a filmmaker from, uh, I'm half Nigerian and half Ruan- Rwandese, Rwanda and Nigeria. I was born in Kenya. Uh, I grew up in Congo, Brazzaville. I grew up in Benin, grew up in Togo, grew up in Nigeria. I grew up in various parts of Africa. My family used to travel a lot. So um, I grew up seeing Africa from a very, very different point of view. Um, as I grew up, I became a filmmaker. First of all, I became an actor and then got into filmmaking because uh, I wasn't seeing any roles for people like, when I say like myself, I'm not even speaking specifically as a black man. I'm speaking specifically as an African person. We Oftentimes when uh, films and documentaries are made about Africa, we're, la- we're the last people to know about it, last people to be involved. Uh, so I've started writing my own work. I, I made a play. I wrote a play about 12 years ago called Another Biafra about the Niger Delta oil crisis, which is an issue that goes on between Shell and the local people of the community in uh, what is now the southern part of Nigeria. Um, then I started making uh, feature films and then, of course, uh, moved into documentaries. The documentaries that I make are essentially historical documentaries, travel documentaries about Africa. I've made one on uh, Dahomey and Vodun. So I went to the countries of Benin and Togo, did a documentary about the people of the uh, the, the medieval, medieval kingdom of uh, Dahomey, late Middle Ages, and the Vodun spiritual system, trying to demystify the fact that Vodun in itself is not an evil thing. It's a spiritual practice in the same way that uh, Christians would call Christianity a spiritual practice, etc., the next documentary I made after that, I went to Mali, which is uh, further north, going towards North Africa, but more in the central part of West Africa. I did a documentary where I traveled from uh, one part of Mali all the way to the ancient city of Timbuktu, which uh, for those of you who know anything about Timbuktu, it's a 
an ancient city of learning where at one point was responsible for the majority of books that were being made in the world. It was uh, a place which uh, really up until the late 1900s was regarded as a, as a magical place. And everybody in Europe, everybody in Asia wanted to come to this particular place. It is also significant because uh, in Mali, what is now present day Mali, you had the last of the great kingdoms of Africa. Africa's had numerous great kingdoms in its, inter- in its history. But the last of the great ones, in the words of John Henry Clark, the last, when Africa took its last walk in the sun, it was in Mali. So I made a documentary about that. And then after that, I moved on and made another documentary about uh, the people called the Hausa people in what is now northern Nigeria. Hausa is a group of people who, by the way, had their own warrior queen, not king, uh, uh, in the name of Amina. Uh, and um, there were some city-states who became Islamic, but were also very prominent, very powerful, but never united. Um, I've made a few other documentaries since then, and I'm continuing to make documentaries. I'm actually heading out to Egypt in two weeks to shoot a documentary about the Nile Valley, but specifically about the texts, what people wrote about themselves. Um, And in that one, I'm working with uh, uh, a professor of... uh, What is he a professor of now? Uh, from the University of Ghana Institute of African Studies, an African-American who uh, repatriated back to Ghana 14 years ago and uh, works but primarily in linguistics. So he also reads Medunecha, which is the hieroglyphic language, and we are deciphering a lot of the things that are being said, and uh, we're going to put it in this documentary. Man, so that's I... me in a nutshell, my brother. Yeah, that's good stuff. Very excited. Keep me tuning in, man. Keep me tuning in in that. Man, I'll, I man, I like your document, doc, documentaries that you have done, Thank and uh, like for people who are watching and hey, watching this live interview, trust me, all his information is gonna be in the description on YouTube, where you have the opportunity to go and check out his work on his YouTube channel. He got a lot of great stuff, you get good views. So if you want to be on brainwashed and know the truth about history, uh, man, that's 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 the place to know. Because I'm gonna tell you something, black people, uh. Uh, where if you know what tribe you're from or of anything, it's good to understand the truth of what goes on in Africa and what have went on because they're not going to tell you the truth. Mm. It's, you live in America. You live under where America go protect its uh, image in means necessary mm-hmm. and, and give you mm-hmm. enough to, to make you, to appease you so you won't be as mad as you should be or, or, or you know, or able to uh, process and, and become the better version of of you so what i further do um uh, uh, uh i want you to explain to the people uh the difference between the slaves in africa to slaves in america and uh, the pros and cons the lights and, and un- unlikes so to speak okay well well, we've got to be careful with pros and cons because let me, I say, I say this because, uh, well, I'm, I'll take about the pros and cons. There's no, 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 I know what you mean, but there's, there's, the a very and, and non-similar. Well, I'm there's an interesting anecdote here because, uh, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the level of misinformation that we've been given both in Africa and in the Americas, all across the Americas and Europe is pretty much a similar level. Um, it's a similar level of misinformation. You know, in, 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 if you go to Ghana now, up until a few years ago, you still had history books which would talk about advantages and disadvantages of colonialism, advantages and disadvantages of slavery. 
Right. You know, so it's just an interesting anecdote there because uh, in a way you can look at something and say there are some advantages. In a way, there's uh, some disadvantages. And let's not forget that throughout history, we've had people who've written books, African-American people, African people who've written books complementing the colonial and enslavement period of our people. So it's just it's just an interesting uh, uh, statement to make because it's not it's not technically wrong, but it's part and parcel of the education we've received. But let me um, go back to the beginning. So let's r- rather than uh, 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 gloss over anything, slavery did exist all across the world. Okay, all across the world, a form of slavery existed. But let's qualify what the word slavery means. If you mean slavery in the sense of shackles, chains and being degraded and being called three fifths of a human being, uh, being beneath the human being, being beneath the people that you are being controlled over, being put in a position where you would never be able to free yourself, never be able to be regarded on the level as your masters. That is a specific thing that is restricted to the western hem- uh, to the to the western hemisphere or rather the western world the americas the caribbean and the europeans that's 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 something that they began because if you even go back to the days of the romans you had uh if you even go back before that but let's just say you go back to the period of the romans which is 2000 years ago when they were really dominant uh wherever they would go they would have a thing called pax romana which is essentially roman roman peace for the most part, there was some peace, but for but really what was actually happening is they were destroying all their enemies, okay? Uh, but what, what they were also doing is they were taking the best of the people, the best, the most intelligent, and bringing them as part of the Roman Empire, all right? The best of the people. Uh, you, have such, you have a story of a man called Malik Amba, who's an African person who was taken as a slave to India, uh, going back thousands of years now, taken as a, uh, sorry, a, a, a thousand years, taken as a slave to India and then rose up into the family and even became a nobleman in India, right? We have, we have uh, uh, Arius, who is a, a man who is in ancient Rome, who is an African person, ends up rising up in the ranks of, of ancient Rome as a big uh, political figure. So it's just to say that the concept of slavery did exist, but it was never in the form of the chattel of African people that we see in, Amer- in the Americas. It was never in that form. There are very few places that you can see that. You do see it in small segments with the the Eastern slave trade, the Arab slave trade, which took Africans from Central Africa, Western Africa, and took them to Persia. Okay, And this is at a time when when you regard Persia, Persia is what they call the Middle East. And then that little bend that goes down to Saudi Arabia, Yemen, that area, that is what they call Persia. If you look at its proximity to Africa, it's incredibly close, not only by water, but physically by land. It is connected, so we are not uh, 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 we're not very far away from them. Which also means that the people that were enslaving us were also people like us. Okay, that brings up some separate issues. Now, I know what we're going to discuss today is mainly the Dahomey Kingdom, so I want to focus on that. You see, the Dahomey, I mean, uh, the 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 so-called transatlantic slave trade, is largely a trade. Uh, uh, which is is largely a system that is created by Europeans, a demand that is created by Europeans for Africans. If there was no demand for Europeans, for Africans, there would be no transatlantic slave trade. And I want to explain this part in a little bit more detail. You see, uh, uh, 
at the time, at the time, let's go to the period of the year 1492, one of the most crucial years in the history of the world. Because for seven, maybe 800 years prior to that, in what is now called Spain, Portugal, and the southern parts of France, and even parts of Western Europe, Europe had been overrun and controlled by dark-skinned people, largely black people of Islamic origin, called the Moors. This is what they call the Renaissance period of Europe. These Moorish people were ruling Spain, Andalusia, and so on. By 1492, after nearly a thousand years of them bringing civilization to Spain, bringing civilization to Portugal, bringing civilization to Italy, bringing civilizations to a southern part of France and, and other places too, they finally lost their final stronghold. Okay? And there's an image of this that uh, you can find. It's also in one of my documentaries called uh, The Rise of Islam in Mali, which you can find on my channel as well. Uh, there's an image, a painting showing the final, uh, uh, the giving of the key by the last black man to rule Spain. But in this same year, 1492, that they lose, Christopher Columbus sails to the New World, his first voyage. If you know anything about Christopher, Christopher Columbus, whose real name is Cristobal Colon, and it was later Americanized and called Christopher Columbus, but it's really, really Cristobal Colon. Uh, Christopher Columbus sails to the New World. So he's gone in the same year from being a colonized man to a colonizer. And that is a very crucial bit of information to understand. These people have grown up being educated by the Moors. Uh, you see, you can see evidence of this with things like the, the, the word algebra, algebra, it's an, it's an Arabic word. These Moors, these black people, largely, and they're not all black, by the way. Some of them are from uh, what, you, what you call an Arab person, which is also kind of a misnomer because there's no such, there's no racial type of an Arab. They're different types. But anyway, uh, the, 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 these black people had brought, had, re, had brought in things like the bath system the concept of baths, air conditioning into Spain. We're talking about the period from the 700s all the way to the late 1400s. They had brought all sorts of infrastructure into Spain. You look at the artwork, you look at the, uh, uh, the, the archaeology, you, uh, so not the archaeology, the architecture of Spain and Portugal today. This was brought in by the Moors. And that is one thing which even now they have completely tried to whitewash. They don't talk about it, but it's there. The evidence is there. Christopher Columbus goes to the New World. What is the first thing that he says in his own diary regarding how he learned how to sail to the New World? Because Christopher, Christopher Columbus is a con artist. And if you read uh, Ivan Van Sertima's uh, They Came Before Columbus, he kind of puts everything in detail. But also if you read Christopher Columbus's own um, diaries, the, whatever, the, the, whichever version you can find, you'll see what he writes. He said, as man and boy, I, say, I sailed up and down the Guinea coast. What they mean by Guinea coast is the west coast of Africa. If you look at where Portugal is in terms of proximity, there is a current that takes you around the western part of Africa. It's a current that lands you on the part where you would call, I guess you would call it Senegal, Sierra Leone, that part, that far western part of, of West Africa. He said, as man and boy, I sailed up and down the Guinea coast. Of course he did, because African people were the first people to start sailing. But not only that, were the people who started sailing to the New World. So their information is where Christopher Columbus understood sailing. In fact, uh, 
the Portuguese only became mariners because the African Moors were bringing the information and started schools. Well, they didn't actually start, but, uh, uh, but they gave the information to start schools of navigation in Portugal. Then that went to the British. And that's how all these people eventually became good naval people. But I digress. So Christopher Columbus learns his information about sail, sailing to Africa, also sails to the, and then sails to the New World, because there is a current that takes you from the uh, coast of West Africa into the Gulf of Mexico. That is to say, a current that takes you from what would be Cape Verde Islands, Canary Islands in uh, West Africa, that part of the, I wish I had a map, take you right into the Gulf of Mexico. So take you into where you see uh, Cuba, Jamaica, those islands, and then into New Orleans eventually. That's what they call the Gulf of Mexico. So this is a current which uh, even hundreds and year, hundreds of years later, people have proven that not only is this current a, a, a fact, it's not even worth arguing about. It's a fact. You put yourself in a canoe boat with no engine and you will eventually reach uh, the Gulf of Mexico from the west coast of Africa. But that's not important. So he sails to the New World. He thinks he's going to, well, the argument is he's going to India. He ends up in an island called Haiti, Dominican Republic, Haiti, what later became called uh, Hispaniola. He arrives there and sees black people trading in gold tip metal spears. In other words, uh, he sees black skinned people like the people that came from Africa, uh, set, who he's very familiar with because he's been going to Africa for, since he was a boy. He sees them trading in gold tip metal spears. Even the languages that they are using, the words that they are saying are very similar to words that are being spoken in Africa. They go and have some of these gold tip metal spears tested and they trace them back to the region of Mali and Ghana. Now, let me just give you a little bit of backstory as to why that is. Ghana, the Republic of Ghana today, was formerly called the Gold Coast. It was called the Gold Coast because the British British knew that there was a good uh, deposit of gold in Ghana. If you go back to the, uh, the medieval empires of uh, Wagadu, called Ghana as well, Mali and Songhai, they were known for their gold. So it is not a, uh, to, in fact, there was a gold rush for, for uh, in the Middle Ages of Arab men coming from the Far East, uh, not the Far East, from uh, the Middle East over to find the gold that was in this part of Africa. So these are things which are very common, especially in the old world. So Christopher Columbus sees this gold. He hears the languages that's being spoken. He even on one occasion tells his sailors, almost threatens them not to say that they didn't show up in the, in the, in, in, in India. And this is possibly where we get the term West Indies from, because it's nothing to do with India. Okay. But we call it the West Indies. He also said, I think Haiti, he called Haiti a continent. You know, I mean, this is the level, this is the man who is regarded as a pioneer. I mean, he's either a con artist or a very uneducated person, but I would probably say he's a con artist. Anyway, so he finds all this evidence of African people there, which is very factual because if you go 50, uh, no, not 50, about 100 years before that, you have the reign of, a bit less than that, you have a, the reign of Mansa Musa. Mansa Musa in history is regarded as the wealthiest man to ever live. He was a, Mansa is the title. He was a king in what was the Mali Empire. He became king because his uncle or cousin, older cousin, uncle, 
abdicated his throne. And what did he do? His name was Abu Bakr. What did he actually do? He took, he was very into navigation and took ships from West Africa, what is now called uh, uh, West Africa, and sailed to Mexico or southern parts of Mexico and never came back. Uh, people argue that you can see some of the evidence of his influence in places like Tresaportes and places in Mexico, such as Cancun. You can find some evidence of it. Okay. So uh, uh, um, uh, Abu Bakr had sailed years before uh, uh, Cristobal Colon had sailed to the New World for the first time. So once they arrive there, and Christopher Columbus only gets the permission from the king, uh, the, the king of Spain, and also from, the, uh, from the, uh, the Pope of the Catholic Church, who gives him permission to reduce to servitude all infidels. In other words, I give you permission to go and spread the word of God by enslaving all the people that are not of the word of God. It's basically an economical uh, religion, in a sense. This is, what, this is the Christendom rather than Christianity. It's the concept of let's go spread our word by force. So they go and do this quite comfortably. And um, once, the dem- once they realize that this place is amazing, you can grow sugar here from the sugar cane, you can plant cotton and all these different things, they realize there's some money to be made here. Haiti at one point was the center of sugar, right? Center of sugar. And keep in mind, in Europe, they were in an ice age for such a long period that things like sweets, spices it's not even even today it's not really in their mind they don't really spice their food they might take sugar but but you know they're not uh they don't the the balance of flavors is not you you can't regard it as a european thing anyway long story short uh so 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 in so so he gets permission from the king of spain and the arch and the and the pope of the catholic church and they say okay let's go and try and find people to work in Haiti, they use the locals. It's actually the reason why if you go to Haiti today, you will, there are very few, if none, if any, sorry, local or indigenous people to that part of the world. They're just black people brought over as enslaved people. So they pretty much wiped out the population. They also wiped out the population in, in North America, as you know, as well, a lot of the population. They do it in many places. So they wiped out the population by trying to get them to work. In Europe, as people started acquiring uh, property uh, territories in the Caribbean and in North America, they start to bring over the, the poor working class. Now, it's also important to understand, if you want to understand slavery, you have to understand the class system that existed in Europe up until that point. The class system that existed in Europe was one which uh, you had... Uh, uh, the, the, the aristocracy on top, essentially the landowners or landlords and the workers that worked on the land. This is not, the urbanized cities were not really a thing. They were just landowners and people who worked the land and paid tax to the, whatever it be, the lord of the manor or the duke and so on. And this is really a legacy of the different invasions that happened in, 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 in places in, in, in Europe. You had the Normans, the French people that invaded uh, uh, Britain, and they brought a divide within themselves. The French aristocracy, the legacy of Queen Elizabeth, by the way, her ancestors, they brought that whole legacy in the first place. So these people 
So many people were fleeing. Many people were actually fleeing the oppression of Britain and European aristocracy, right? And so some of them came to the Americas, but also some of them were dragged to the Americas as slave workers. They used the Irish, who they hated, the Scottish. They used the working class. And they were not as strong, but certainly in North America, they brought a few over. In fact, that's where you get the concept of uh, white trash. What you call white trash, you're a low-class white person because you're a legacy of the working class of Britain. And so this is where we get some of these terminologies. So they tried slavery with everybody, the locals, indigenous, and with their own people. But as 1492 is a crucial year, you have to understand that the Moors that lost or that were defeated by by, uh, Spain and, and, and Portugal in 1492, excuse me, the few that remained went to things like the Spanish Inquisition. They were trialed and killed. Some were taken as enslaved people. And also remember, these are the educated people of, of Europe, the smart people. So some were brought over to the Americas with uh, those first uh, expeditions. So, so they started to see that black people physically had a resilience and an intelligence that they could use to work this land. And as time went on, these Portuguese people started to see that this was very lucrative. So they went, went back to the West Coast of Africa and they saw that, again, the West Coast of Africa is, 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 is something which, until you go there, you can't really understand it. You see, Africa is a continent primarily. Please, I, I hope I'm not uh, waffling if you wanted to ask me questions, by the way. No, no, keep going. Okay. The, okay. I do have some question answers, but... I'm gonna get to the point. I'm trying to uh, you to clarify how how everything becomes so white and okay. black in those places where black people used to rule. Yeah, you know what I'm saying because I know you'll get to the point. You know, like I'll, I'll right. get there. I, I'm trying to lay the foundation so that yeah, go ahead. Happening across go ahead. the world. We got plenty of time. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. No problem. So Christopher Cristobal Colon goes back. Well, not just him, but America Vespucci. The, the, the different. Uh, 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 people are going to these places um, and and largely going back and starting to establish uh, forts along the coast. The Portuguese mainly, the Dutch are doing it too. The Danes are doing it. The Norwegians are doing it. Everybody's doing it. The British aren't really getting into it. And it's not until the British get into it that a big deal happens. Okay, like the, it it goes to another level. So they're doing this and they're establishing forts. Now, it's also important to understand that they were all, there was also an enslavement going to the eastern part. Like I mentioned before, there was, it was going from the regions that are north of the coast, so Mali, Senegal, Chad, that area, going across to the far east, Tanzania, and then taking over, over boats. This is also the period of Islamic invasion. Uh, uh, Isla- Islam is now a prominent thing. And so there's an Arabic Islamic slave trade. Who the, which the Portuguese are also involved in, okay? They're also involved in. Now, the British people uh, eventually get involved in the war themselves. I'll get to that probably in the, in the next part. But I want to explain to you how slavery was working in the African system up until it became the transatlantic slave system. Again, indentured servitude, as I've mentioned before, happened all over the world. People captured, taken as slaves, 
some taken as uh, as uh, as uh, 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 to fill quotas, some simply because they were captured in battle. Uh, not necessarily taken because we need you to go and work in the cotton fields. Not necessarily. That is something that, of course, came largely with the transatlantic slave trade. But uh, in this part of the world, we had a situation where uh, uh, African people didn't have prisons. The concept of prisons, putting someone in a dungeon, is a European thing. Taking somebody and, and, and putting them far away, sending them into exile, this is something that we just didn't do. So when, uh, when, when different kingdoms would battle each other, when different regions would battle each other, the, loss, the person that lost the war, they, they, sometimes the leader would be beheaded, which happened in order to stop an uprising. Um, sometimes the people will be taken in as enslaved people, but they were never degraded in the sense that you see in the Americas. They were used, sometimes they could marry into the family, sometimes they could rise up. In fact, if you look at the Hausa kingdoms, for instance, uh, they would always, and, and this is why it's very important to understand who's writing the book. Uh, they would say that um, uh, sometimes kings had slaves as his bodyguard, okay? So-called slaves as their bodyguards. So it's not to say that they were just, um, uh, uh, people, were, people were never made to feel like they were less than human. So that was what was going on. And really that was what was going on elsewhere. But the Europeans were already practicing a system of, I am, being, I am above my working class. So they were already practicing a similar system to chattel slavery. So when slavery went to the next level and became, and everybody started getting involved in it, they started to see that, oh my God, these people, once they are around our land, our controlled land, we could do whatever we want with them. And this is where chattel, uh, indentured slavery became chattel slavery. Okay, so those are the primary differences between the two enslavements that were going on in the western part of the world or rather in the americas versus in africa and i hope i covered as much as i could you did <laughs> you did you can um can you hear me now is that better by the way is that better to how it sounded a second ago yeah you sound you sound good <laughs> okay either way okay. go I, yeah you're a lot louder though but you sound fine the first time Okay, I'm a lot louder now, yeah? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. You don't have to be that. Let cut down just a little bit. <laughs> okay, excellent. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, you ain't have to. Yeah, you ain't have to be that loud. You good. Okay, now um, you can. Okay. Now you can go ahead and continue. Um, okay, now I'm going to ask you a question about Christopher Columbus. Tell okay. everybody a little bit about his background before he came to America. A lot of people don't know his background. Because you, you know his background, a lot of people didn't know. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I, I said some of it earlier when, we, when we, we started talking. Christopher Columbus essentially was, uh, he was one of the few people that went to the, uh, there was a naval academy that, we, that was established in Portugal. And the idea was uh, there was a need to, 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 at that time there was talks about, okay, circumnavigating the world being able to go by sea to go and find out what is going on in different parts of the world. And Cristobal Colón was a, trying to use the right phrase, modern day phrase that people will understand. He was a, he was a hustler, essentially. Mm-hmm. Was able to go and negotiate with people, get people to give him money to go on these expeditions to go and find out. He didn't really have a passion or a drive, although he was a sailor, okay? He didn't really, he, from, from his own accounts as well, 
he didn't seem like somebody who was an honest person. In fact, he died a pretty miserable death, you know. Uh, uh, um, but, 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 and in fact, it's interesting because even the concept of, uh, you know, in America, they, in the 90s, they celebrated the, uh, what was it? The, they had the, uh, the anniversary of uh, Christopher Columbus's so-called arrival in the Americas. And, you know, the, really, history went back and rewrote who Christopher Columbus was as a founding father. In the ancient world, he was never really considered, not never, but he wasn't really considered as anybody who'd done anything of merit in that sense. But there's this romanticization of figures sometimes when you find a connection. Because he's Italian, there was a connection there with Italian people recognizing that this is the man who discovered. Okay, and this is the concept of everything is being discovered from the European paradigm. Okay, and it's important also to understand because even in those first, those early years of the enslavement period in the Americas, and I'm and I'm talking about slavery in Mexico, slavery in the, in Southern America, slavery. I'm not even talking about North America yet. Because again, North America at the time, 1492, is not really, it's not, it's the, 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 there's not enough of a stronghold by any of the European powers in what is now called North America. It's largely indigenous, largely. Uh, but certainly the Portuguese had started going into Brazil. In fact, at one point, Portugal had two kingdoms, in, one in Brazil, one in Portugal. Uh, in Mexico, there were small enclaves that were being held by the Spanish people, Spanish-speaking people. You know, and you even had rebellions there. Uh, um, you had um, you, the Gaspayanga rebellion. You know, Gaspayanga was an African enslaved African, one of those first few Africans that was taken, and had his own slave rebellion, and had a king, had a, a an empire that not an empire, had uh, ended up uh, freeing him and his people, and ruling for a very long period in the part of Mexico. You had a similar thing happened in um, in uh, um, oh my God. My sorry, it's it's quite late where I am, so I'm trying to remember too much. In um, oh god, I forget the name. But anyway, even before the even before the United States of America as a concept begins to arrive, Africans are being enslaved, and rebellions are happening just south of the border. Border, right? So these this is these are things that are constantly happening. So Christopher Colon really as a figure is not even worth talking about in a, from a historical point of view. Okay. Only crucial from the European perspective of discovering that there are places around the world where we can go and exploit. And that's really his, his mark on history. Thank you. I'll, I'm glad you cleared that up. <laughs> and now, it's, not, it's not really a, a question of, I'm not even being biased. It's just purely, if you go, yeah, and, study, I, the, if you go and study history, you go and study his you go and study his diaries and read what he is saying as he's discovering. He's not planning any of this stuff. He's just right. purely a hustler, and that's it. Right. I'm glad. You, I'm glad. The reason I want you to uh, to explain that because people who in America go watch this, you know, to see how how you know how, how America, like you know, Western countries like America, have glorified certain figures and made them and made them cornerstones of certain things where they shouldn't be there. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. why I want you to 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 lay down that that part of the truth. You know yeah. what I'm saying? That and that's important. Even though y'all know it, people down here don't know it because the way they yeah. teach the history down here. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now, where part do you want to go to? Do you want to go talk about the slave in the 
in America? Or do you want to go ahead and talk to a little bit more about the Hummer trial? What order should we okay, go? Well, well, I'm not even let me let me let me lead up to the Hummer Kingdom because I think somehow I will link back to okay. the Hummer Kingdom and then um, let me so go. let me just go from where I left off. So okay, uh, again, I uh, to anybody watching, I apologize. I have to go and give you a world view of what is going on so that you understand why it's happening. So. Uh, there's a king in England called King Henry VIII. At the time, England is part of the, I suppose, the Roman Catholic Church. And we, we also have to understand certain things. When we talk about early Christianity, early Christianity essentially is just Catholicism. It's not until Martin Luther uh, goes and creates, goes and starts posting things on the walls of the Roman Catholic Church, showing all the corruption, that you start to see what you call Protestantism. So if he hadn't done that, even the concept of being a, uh, a Baptist or Methodist wouldn't be there, right? You would just be a Catholic because that was the only form of, of Catholicism. Anyway, Henry VIII is, uh, has, has had numerous wives and keeps divorcing them. Uh, he eventually divorces, he eventually wants to divorce his latest wife and goes to plead with the Roman Catholic uh, Pope. And he says to him, no, you can't do it. So what does he do? He decides to form his own church, which is the Church of England. Okay, Church of England is really where we start to see, when you talk about the King James version of the Bible, King James is the nephew of uh, Henry VIII. So we're talking about the man who essentially started everything that we consider blackness. When we talk about church, when we talk about God and all these things, we're really, we, you have to see where all these things eventually come from. So he eventually creates uh, the Church of England and he divorces himself from it, but he doesn't get into the slave trade. If you think about where Britain is in comparison to Africa, it might as well be, be the moon and, and, and earth. It might as well be that far, right? Or, or the sun and earth, whatever, whatever galaxy, whatever planet is further away from us or whatever. So he decides that we are going to uh, uh, divorce. He eventually divorces his wife becomes Church of England. Now he has a daughter called Elizabeth I, a savage woman, a brutal woman in every sense of the word. Um, there is talk about how she used to murder her lovers and so on. Uh, uh, they call this the golden age, the Elizabeth the golden age. <laughs> She's the woman who, the woman who just passed away, Queen Elizabeth II, is named after. So, you know, when you talk about legacy, you know, in a name, from the English point of view, they might, you know, she's been named after a great woman. But to us African people, she's named after one of the most evil people. Because Elizabeth I, at first, didn't want to get into slave trade. But her sailors are going around and seeing how much the Portuguese are making, how much the French are making. They got lands in, in France. They're doing all this sugar. They're getting all this sugar. They're bringing all these enslaved people from Africa, making them work the land making them, the, the, the production is tenfold. So she says, okay, let's go find out. Now, even before this happens, Elizabeth I has heard about Mali, I mean, Songhai. Songhai is that kingdom that exists in West Africa, the last great kingdom that we have, and actually collaborates. There's evidence, uh, certainly according to Donna Henry Clark's work, there's uh, evidence that there is a letter that she wrote to the king of, Sultan of Morocco, uh, basically giving him a support along with some Spanish uh, troops, mercenaries, 
to go over and destroy the Songhai Empire, which eventually happens. So she's already, she's aware with what's going on around the world, but they're not thinking in racial terms until they see how much money she can make. So she sends some of her, she sends Captain Hawkins, uses her own personal ship, the good ship Jesus. That's what the ship is called. And they go across the West African coastline. They start to see how this business is being run. But it's being done by the Portuguese, who again, in one year, went from being colonized people to colonizers. So they're seeing how these people are making money. They're seeing how they're doing deals with the locals. They're seeing what's going on in the Caribbean. And she just says, you know what? We will get into it. This is where you start to see the layman's brothers, uh, all these uh, Lloyds of London, all these insurance companies and investment banks and uh, 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 all these companies which have a legacy even in more recent times, they were established off the back of the enslavement of African people. Because this is when the concept of speculation over human beings starts. Speculation, stock market. Okay, we think uh, FTSE is going to rise 1%. The concept of this came with human beings, African human beings, under the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. So she made it a formalized business. Ships. We're going across the West African coast. They were buying up the lands, buying up the forts that the Portuguese had established, Elmina, Cape Coast. As you come down, even going down to Badagri, they were buying them up, them and the French, of course, and there's competition, right? So they go, they kick the Portuguese, pretty much kick the Portuguese out. Portuguese end up having to go to Southern Africa, around Angola and further down, and then right round back to uh, what is called the Swahili coast, so Tanzania, Kenya, that part. So the British start buying up all these places, buying up all these forts on the coast, start making this business super business. They start doing deals with the kingdoms that they can. They start at first doing stable deals. And uh, I was doing a live pod, uh, video yesterday where I was talking about Richard Burton, uh, not the actor, Richard Burton, the explorer, the British diplomat who would go and negotiate with different kingdoms in West Africa, didn't respect them, but go and negotiate with them, see what they wanted and tell them, look, can we have your captives of war or your slaves? They're like, yeah, we have slaves, but they're not the slaves. You know, he's not thinking about chattel slavery. He's just saying, oh, these are the people that we caught in war. Look at them. They're just there. They're not in a cage. They're just walking around. And he's like, okay, we'll take them. These kings are none the wiser. And then they start realizing that these kings, uh, in their minds, are dumb, right? Because they don't know what we're going to do with them. They don't see that we only look at them as a racial color. These kings are not looking at, they're not thinking of each other in terms of race. You can't think of each other in terms of race when you live on a continent where everyone is black. The chances of you seeing white people are unless you live on the coast. So as far as you're concerned, the world is black. So you're not thinking in racial terms. Even in Africa today, we don't really think in racial terms because it's a continent of black people. Nigeria is one country that 200 million black people. If a white person shows up, they stand out, right? If you go across the border, if you go to Congo, one of the biggest countries in the world, uh, in, in Africa, they only think in terms of color. I mean, they only think in terms of ethnic groups or nationalities, okay? It's not changed. So in, 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 um, so, these uh, diplomats are going and doing the queen's work, doing deals. And then they start to say, 
see that, okay, look, we know you guys are fighting a war with that group. So here's what we say. Let's give you some weapons, superior weapons that we know you will use to defeat them. Rather than pay us anything back, give us your captives of war. Okay, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I can defend myself and I don't have to lose any of my own people. I'll just give you my captives of war. You're thinking, for the most part, captives of war are just being used in the same way that we use captives of war. Because we don't have prisons, so we either... And I'm not saying that sacrifices didn't exist. There were sometimes where they will sacrifice kings and so on. But for the most part, captive of war is a captive of war. We use him to work the land. Eventually they can go back, maybe, or they could stay here, whatever, right? So they eventually go and start doing this. But the British starts to, remember, at the height of the slave trade, the height of the British Empire, they had 25% of the planet. Just think about that. 25% of the landmass was owned by this small island. And even when you talk about Britain, understand Britain itself right now is, a, is one nation colonizing three others. In Britain, you have Wales, you have Scotland, you have England. England controls Scotland and Wales. They've colonized them to the point where in both countries, they speak English as a primary language, but they are non-English speakers. Welsh people speak Welsh. That's their native language. But they speak English in the same way. If you go to Nigeria, you go to various other countries in Africa, we speak English first because we were colonized by the English. They did the same thing in Ireland. All these places have their own language, their own culture. But when People in America, I'm sure, think about Britain. They only just think about England. That's because England colonized the whole part. But anyway, so England goes around and starts doing these deals with these people. And then they start amp uh, upping the stakes because they need more and more Africans. They need more and more Africans. They're acquiring land everywhere. They now start to come into the United States. They now start to get those original colonies. They now start to see that the French are in places like Louisiana. They see Florida. The Spanish are creeping up, creeping up on Florida. Napoleon is in Louisiana. Napoleon is uh, <clears throat> French, French troops are starting to control different parts. Parts of New York are owned by Dutch people, owned by uh, 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 this people. You know, everybody's starting to acquire little bits of land on that eastern Atlantic Ocean side, the eastern side of America. Again, because of look at the proximity. When you follow that current from West Africa, you go to East Africa. This is not something you could easily do from Europe. You have to follow the current, which takes you to West Africa first and takes you to that part. So they need more people to work the land. So now we need to up the stakes. Now we need to offer all of them guns. So we go and tell Dahomey, I mean, we go and tell Oyo, we go and tell the king of, uh, uh, we go and tell the Alafin of Oyo, who is the king of Oyo. We go and tell the Oni of Ife, we, who is the king of Ife, who is another kingdom of Yoruba people. We go and tell the <coughs> Oba of Benin, who is another big kingdom in, in southern part of, uh, or the central part of Nigeria. We go and start meeting all these guys along the coast, all these kingdoms, and start telling them, look, get, you're fighting, you guys are fighting. Get your gun, here's some guns, go and defeat, give us your captives of war. So they up the stakes. How we get to the Dahomey kingdom is this. The Oyo, Oyo kingdom. In the movie, 
they called the king the Oba. Now, I don't believe that is the appropriate term for the king of, uh, of that place. It's the Alafi. That's who the king of Oyo is. But it, it doesn't really matter. Oba is, means king in the Yoruba language. But anyway, the, 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 the Oyo decide, oh my God, we can't get enough demand. We're fighting these battles and we're sacrificing our own lives. So let's go east. Oh, let's go west. So they go west to what is now called Dahomey, where you had scattered groups of Africans, small groups, not kingdoms, but small groups of people. Start kidnapping people. They kidnap so many that uh, they capture so many, rather, that these, some of these people, particularly the, a group called the Tofino people, decide to go and create a city on water so that they wouldn't be caught. Uh, it's, uh, if you watch the early part of my documentary that, uh, called The Dahomey Kingdom, which you can find on, on my channel and various other platforms, at the very beginning, I go to this, this town where people built houses on water, on stilts, because it will avoid them being captured. Some of them run further north to a place called Abome, A-B-O-M-E-Y. Abome becomes the kingdom the central kingdom of Dahomey. And what happens is these people get together and say to, say to each other, we are fed up of what is going on. Let's form ourselves into a kingdom. Let's get the strongest of our people. Let's train them. Let's learn how to defend ourselves. And there are all sorts of innovations that they have. They go and make underground tunnels where they can hide during war and during battles. Again, if you watch my documentary, you'll see some of these places places where they store water, that they will go underground so that when the oil come, they'll know how to pounce on them. They master them, their tactics in guerrilla warfare, which will come in handy later when they get taken as slaves to the Americas. So the oil and them are fighting battles, but now the Dahomey kingdom is blossoming. The Dahomey kingdom is run by the four people, F-O-N, the four people versus the oil, <clears throat> excuse me, so the oil people are fighting this battle with them. Some win, some lose. <coughs> Excuse me. So the oil people eventually go, uh, sorry, the, the, the Dahomey kingdom eventually becomes a powerful nation. Powerful kingdom in this part of the world. Because now the oil can't just mess with them anymore. They're together, they're solid. So as all kingdoms uh, and as all uh, powerful nations do, there's a saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But when you have an enemy like Britain or France or Portugal or Spain or Holland who is willing to do anything to get a human life, to degrade a human life just so they can make money off them, you yourself will become corrupt because now they're up in the stakes. You need more guns because it's not just the homemade that are coming for you. The Ashanti Faraway are coming for you. Yeah, the king down at Agbodrafo in Togo is coming for you. Everybody is now coming for you because you're the powerful kingdom. We now know not only you need slaves from you, we now also want to take your head because you're a powerful kingdom and you have a good connection with the, the white people. And so it becomes something else. So what one of the things is the Mino or the Agoji, the female defense force, is started by one of the female kings around the third or fourth generation of the Dahomey kingdom. Dahomey kingdom starts in the 1600s. 
So let's just put that in context. We're talking 400 years ago, the Daomei kingdom started. What I was talking about earlier with the Mali kingdom, we were talking about the 1400s and 1300s. So we're talking about the last 800, uh, 700 years of history, how things just in West Africa changed. So the Dahomey kingdom becomes powerful, takes Oyo people, takes these people, and they're now marching them down to the coast. Now, I want to deal with something which uh, people always talk about, which is, oh, Africans sold other Africans into slavery. It's a very, it's a very disingenuous statement. Because, first of all, we didn't look at each other as Africans. We looked at each other as your Oyo, your Dahomey. On the periphery of every society are people who have no real um, ties to anyone in the hinterland. All these kingdoms are not on the coast. They're in the hinterland. If you go to Benin Republic, modern-day Dahomey, to go from the coast to Abome is a three, four, five hour drive. Now, if you take that, you go back 100, 200, 300 years, that's maybe a two day journey. It's far, it's very far, right? So the people on the coast were the people like, if you watch all those old movies where you have the, the white sailors come in, the European ships, and then you have all the locals go out in their canoes to go and meet them. Those people on the coast existed in Africa too. They were people who, you know, for the most part were, you know, just really small societies, small groups of people, you know. And, and Ivan Van Sertima, the great uh, uh, historian, always says, you don't, look, you don't judge a society by the people on the periphery. The people on the periphery were the ones who dealt directly with the Europeans. They would learn the languages of the Europeans. They would be the ones that would give them little things, glasses, little gold. You're breaking gold, up. Hold on. Oh, you're breaking up. Kidnap people. Okay, you're breaking really? up. Yeah, you would. You sorry. You're okay. You're freezing. No, you can go back. <laughs> you start off a little bit. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, let me let me go back. Maybe that hey, you're freezing up. Okay. First of all, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Your, your video is freezing up a little bit. I don't know what internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you froze now. <laughs> um, can you hear me? You can come back in, come back on if you want to. If you can hear me, come back in and come back on because your video froze. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. you. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. You were kind of frozen a little bit. I don't know about your Wi-Fi connection. What's going on? Okay. I don't Maybe. I think I just switched back to a different Wi-Fi connection. You know, sometimes these Wi-Fi connections, they just, they go to sleep. Yeah, you're doing uh, good. Now, you you start off, you were talking about, um, well, you're freezing up at the part about, um, some the this I don't know. You talking a little about you talking a little about um. I'm trying to remember. Were you talking about? Were there talking about a little bit about black people slave? You know, was uh. Was, Did you hear about the part where I mentioned the people on the periphery of the society? Yes, yes, yes. You, you ran that okay, part. So let me let me go free. back there. So the people on the periphery of the society were the ones that made the contacts with the Europeans. They were the ones who the Europeans would dealt directly with every single day whenever they arrived. They weren't necessarily connected to the kingdoms. The kingdoms were dealing with it as far as a battle. They were fight, They were in the hinterland fighting battles against other kingdoms. They weren't really concerned what was going on the coast. So as far as they were concerned, when they gave captures, captives of war, they would get people on the coast to march them. And sometimes they would get people on the coast to run into the hinterland and capture farmers, capture farmers' children, 
capture farmers' uh, uh, wives because these people had a quota. They needed to sell. They needed to have a certain amount of people on these ships in order to justify to the insurance companies in Britain, France, and so on that this is how many people we've got to the point where you know they would pay taxes. I mean, this is you know we're talking about paying taxes on human beings. There's there there's there's a lot of uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Thames River in England is uh, the river that flows through London. It's the river where uh, they said uh, as ships were coming in to dock, in order to avoid paying insurance, maybe you over, you, t- you were supposed to bring 100 slaves and you bring 110. But now the insurance person is going to count how many people on the dock. So they will throw bodies into the River Thames, similar to how they were doing the Atlantic Ocean. This is, they, they took it to a new level. Because now it was all about the bottom line. Human being, human lives didn't matter. So the people on the periphery were the ones that would go in and bring these people. And sometimes the people on the periphery would be taken too. Because quite simply, if they didn't meet the quota, they'll take them. Remember, they had the superior weapons. But the kingdoms, they couldn't really penetrate. They couldn't really penetrate. And they weren't interested in fighting a battle with these African kingdoms. They would rather let them fight themselves. Okay? So the Dahomey kingdom becomes one of the powerful kingdoms in Africa. And really, slavery becomes their business. Quite simply because if they don't do it, somebody will take them as slaves. Simple. It's very important to understand this. Some people don't want to accept it. But that is what was happening. No one was thinking in terms of racial. As a matter of fact, in, uh, uh, when 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 uh, the first time African people even had the concept that, oh, they're only taking black people is when they were marching them down from the coast. I mean, from these kingdoms that they were captured and they get to the coastline and a Dahomey king, I mean, a Dahomey warrior or even one of the women warriors from the woman king. She gets there. She said, I fought you yesterday. Your oil. I fought you. And so all of a sudden now they realize, hmm, they haven't brought us here to fight each other. They're going to use us in the exact same way. And this is where these concepts of modern day Pan-Africanism start. When you start talking about Pan-Africanism, you're saying, okay, what makes us the same? We're black. This is where these concepts start to arise in this new world. There was a period in ancient Egypt where they also realized this, but that's for a, a later, that's for another conversation. So they start to realize that we're being taken as black. And very quickly on these slave, so-called slave ships, they recognize that even though we don't speak the same language, we might not even have the same diet. We might not even believe in the same type of God. But we know that we are black. And that's where you see the numerous uprisings happen on the boats. Numerous uprisings. And these are people who are different. Now, At this point in time, before America really becomes America, remember America becomes itself in the late 1700s. The 1770s is when America becomes itself. Up until then, it's part of the British crown. And really, it's only as part of the eastern coast, largely, and going down towards the south. That is what you call America. It's what you call America. America is a small part of the eastern coast. So. At this point, when African people are being transported to the New World, again, remember I said the Gulf of Mexico, they're being taken to the Caribbean. 
They get taken to the Caribbean, and that is essentially the market. Then American traders will be there, or British traders living in America. Uh, Spanish traders living in, say, uh, Mexico, uh, or, or, or uh, your British traders in Barbados, uh, Montserrat. All these different places will come there. Okay, we like this one. We'll, like, we'll take 100 of these. We'll take 50 of these. Then they'll then take them and go back. So up until that point, they would take them to places like Haiti and they would literally sell them to the different plantation owners in Haiti or what was then called Hispaniola because there was no such thing as Dominican Republic in Haiti. It was just one island owned by the French. And what happened? These people, many of them from Dahomey, many of them fighters, many of them warriors, because remember, we're talking about captives of war. So these are people who are skilled in guerrilla warfare. I talked to you about the Dahomey kingdom and how they learned how to dig holes and fight underground, guerrilla warfare. Even though they were surrounded by their enemies as, who were also slaves, they said, let's come together. And the biggest example of coming together, I told you about Gaspayanga in Mexico, which happened in the 1500s, 1500s. Look at how far back. And then, of course, it culminates in the Haitian Revolution, which really ends in the early 1800s around 1804-1805, which is really an uprising of people who came under what they call the voodoo spiritual system, what they call voodoo. Voodoo spiritual system is a spiritual system practiced by Dahomey, but it's also a euphemism for African magic, what they call animism. All these African spiritual systems came together. And there's uniformity in all of them. All, all of them have some uniformity. This concept of uh, God is is there is a supreme God, but there are numerous versions of numerous spirits, right? Numerous spirits, same thing like you have in Christianity. All these African systems practice a similar thing. My own people, the Igbo, we have our own. Uh, the Dahomey have their own. The Yoruba speaking peoples, Ogun, Ogun. Uh, the, the, the diff- everybody has their own, right? Islam is the only foreign religion that really exists in Africa at this point. Other than that, everything is completely indigenous. So they come together under the Vodun spiritual system. And even before the Haitian Revolution, I wanted to shout, I mentioned this yesterday, you have people like Mackindal, who are practitioners of the Vodun spiritual system, who before the war is started, go around and start using spiritual uh, African potions to poison their masters. Because in Haiti, they're using people from largely the same region of the world. That's why they came together. In fact, it's after the Haitian Revolution that they decide, from now on, when we bring them to the Caribbean, we are going to pick ones. We, we're going to um, take them either directly to our colonies so that we can break them and not have this issue. We start splitting them up so that they don't speak the same language. We're going, we're going to start uh, uh, taking people from various different regions and putting them in different, in different places. We're going to stop them allow, being, being allowed to speak their, their language. And it's also important to know that slavery in the Caribbean is very different to slavery in, in America, United States of America. That's another thing, but, but we'll, we'll deal with that somewhere else. So this is when you, so you start to see it. Now, it's interesting because the defeat uh, of Haiti's, ha- ha- they, they say Toussaint Louverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who are the two pioneers of the Haitian Revolution, descend from Dahomey. They are descendants of the Dahomey kingdom. Keep in mind, the, the uprising in the Haitian Revolution was also fought by these same Mino or Agoji, these women kings, if you want to call it, which is really a horrible terminology. 
again, the film, The Woman King, which I haven't seen, you have to be clear that it's, it's a title that's used for sensationalism. We live in a very, uh, for lack of a better word, pro-feminine era. So calling a woman a king is, and really they weren't women kings. They were defendants. They were the bodyguard of the king. That's what they were. They were the bodyguard of the king. They're not, uh, the army was still largely populated by men. Largely populated by men. My documentary, I go to one of the commemorations of the men that fought. I mean, they, they, it's still populated by men. Uh, and then, but it's just that these women who were virgins, young girls who were seen as the, you call them the wives of the king, you know, they were there to protect him. Anyway, because he's pure. The, the, in fact, the, the king had to breathe pure air. So he had this like, uh, this trinket made of, uh, is it silver or gold? that he would wear so that he could only breathe air. He can't breathe the same air as everybody else. That's how pure the king was, the king of, of Dahomey. But anyway, so a Haitian revolution happens and the def- defeat is so bad that these African people have come together despite all the differences they have and formed an alliance and defeated us, defeated the armies of Napoleon and so on. And so this is when you start to hear Vodun being called voodoo, black magic. This is when history starts to change. Uh, this is when, of course, you know, there's an embargo, a uh, uh, blockade of Haiti, which really crippled their, their economy till today. Uh, but also, this Haitian revolution is such a bitter p- pill to take. I've already mentioned Gaspar Yanga's uprising. There's Denmark Vizi's uprising. There's Gabriel, there's Prosser's uprising, right? There are all these uprising in these small regions of America, which haven't really made up what we call the America that you see today. This is in different regions. So you're starting to see that these people are realizing this thing isn't sustainable. Let's end slavery. So the British are the first to do it. A couple of years after the ending of the, after the Haitian revolution, they're like, well, let's shut this thing down. No more slavery, so-called. Right? Because they see that it's not making sense. It's not making sense. Of course, they had pressure from uh, missionary groups, some people's, uh, you know, there were b- books like the ne- uh, Book of Negro that came out. Olaude Equiano, an enslaved man who was taken from what is now called Nigeria, who wrote a book about what the horrors of slavery. And some people cared because, again, remember, slavery wasn't seen the same way. Let me also just go back quickly to the 1500s. Elizabeth I, uh, at the time that she was ke- uh, queen, Black people were in prominent roles in London society wealthy people she even tried to go to parliament to petition that they get removed and apparently the 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 petition failed in parliament they they said you can't kick these black people out you know they're part of the society so it just shows you racism wasn't in the same way even at the early parts of slavery so uh i think i'm coming to a conclusion on on the point about dahomey we start to see how things began to change but largely why haitian people are probably the most black, the most, uh, 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 and I don't, I want want to be careful is because they are the only ones in that part of the world who have been able to fight for freedom on their own terms. Yes, it didn't make, it wasn't maintained, but certainly they're an example. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that they were largely from the region of Dahomey, but also largely, uh, uh, came together at a time when the enslavement of Africans allowed for people of similar backgrounds to be brought to the same place. So, yeah, thank you.
All right. Yeah. So um, to touch a little bit more at the homie kingdom um, and, and your opinion, you know, you ain't seen the movie yet. I know when you do see the movie, we will do an update on sure. compared to the movie compared to what really happened. And um, like you just touched on uh, to, in your opinion, one more again, when you tell, you know, you about the sensation of putting that thing, what, what, in your opinion, why, and it's on your opinion, why do you think, um, if you want to be honest, why will you think, will you think that the agenda to, to be for U.S. or for that movie to be produced in America, will you think that the, the agenda is, uh, if it's not accurate, to put, to say a woman is a king and to show, and if there are bodyguards, why would they put them as leaders, basically? Instead yeah, of- uh, again, it's like I said earlier, we're in a very pro-feminine society in a sense where anything regarding women is almost exaggeratedly pushed because of some type of uh, oppression that they experienced in the past. And again, uh, even that conversation is very different when you relate to Africa in the old world and Europe, because in Europe, it's a very different thing. In Africa, I, my, my wife is from the same place as me. In Africa, we pay a dowry for a woman. In other words, it's not to say that she's property. It's not to say that she's beneath a man. In in Africa, we never had to ask the question whether a son is more important than his mother. It was never a question. We understand the complementary opposites of man and woman. I paid a dowry for my wife's family because the loss of a woman to any family is a valuable thing, even more so in many ways than a man, because a man is told to go and leave. In Europe, the concept of a a woman is, and I, I mentioned this in my documentary. You see, you have to understand the European mind. There's a very good book called uh, The Iceman Inheritance, which talks about the mentality of the European coming out of the Ice Age. Where you come out, it's freezing. Everything, we're talking about ice, a, snow a mile thick, a mile thick of snow on the ground. You can't do anything. You're living in a cave. It's miserable. Imagine that ice melts. You don't trust anybody. Meanwhile, you manage to just cross the Mediterranean, get to Africa. You see these Africans lying down on the beach. Sun is shining. They pick up a banana, pick up a mango. They're chilling. They're enjoying their lives because they don't have that mentality. So you create a mentality of the strong must survive. That mentality is what makes them look at their women a certain way. Unfortunately, we as Africans growing up in the Western world, we end up adopting these same themes, even though, even though it's not what we originally did. I'm not saying that there's not oppression or mistreatment of women. But again, until the Europeans come into our societies, you start to see the mistreatment of women happen in a similar way, the, 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 the degradation of women. And this is why it's important to go and study our culture. You know, it's, it's, it's simply stupid to think that... Uh, 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 that women uh, in Europe and women in Africa were treated the same since the beginning of time. You look at the Ashanti culture, beautiful culture. They name the day of the week, but every single day has a male and a female, complementary opposites. If you're born on one day, there's a male name, there's a female name. It's not to say one is superior 
than the other, but they are both complementary. But unfortunately, we live in a society run by Europeans who want to push the agenda of, of women in a way that almost takes away from the importance of men. So you dare say woman king because you're trying to compete with men. Whereas the competition with men, A, on a physical level will never work. On a resilience level will never work, at least from the, 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 the waist up. Waist down, women have superior power to a man. Clearly. <laughs> clearly. Right? So we're not talking about something where you have to even compete on the same level. Why don't we just stay in our lanes? So if they had said the woman queen, first of all, there are numerous examples in history of female queens. We, we mentioned the European ones. I mentioned Queen Elizabeth the first, A brutal woman king. Probably, uh, well, she's still a queen, but probably the most brutal in the history, at least in the, in the last thousand years, the most brutal woman king in the world. But if you go to Africa, you have the group in Ethiopia called the Candaces or Kandakes. Centuries of female rulers in Ethiopia. You have uh, warrior queens, Amina, of the Hausa people of uh, Zazau, Z-A-Z-Z-A-U, in, in a place called Kaduna in northern Nigeria. You have, of course, uh, uh, Queen Njinga or Nzinga, whichever you want to call it in uh, the region that will now be Angola. So these, so, 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 but they would never say woman king about those women. But Hollywood, who has a, who is, who is dedicated or whose primary MO is designed to make films to appease a largely Western audience. You can never ever rely on them to educate you even just from an African point, point of view. I have watched numerous African, so-called African films. Uh, I mentioned The Last King of Scotland. I mentioned Blood Diamond. I mentioned Hotel Rwanda. Cry Freedom, Steve Biko. Uh, numerous films about African figures and African events. And not only do they not even care enough to get it right, they don't even tell you a true story. Last King of Scotland, is about a fictional white man called Nick, Nicholas Garrigan. That book, I don't know if you've read the book, Last King of Scotland. First of all, it's not even accurate to the book. <laughs> and the book isn't even about a real person. So, But they go and put Idi Amin in there and throw in all their stereotypes. That's a Hollywood movie. Uh, they go and make a movie like Blood Diamond about the Sierra Leonean civil war, which was largely fought. Uh, over uh, uh, the diamond trade. What they don't show too much about it is how it affected, uh, how how the European enterprise really grew. They might, they show little bits, but they're not care, they don't care about that. They're more interested in seeing a love story between Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, what's the woman's name in the movie? I forget the woman, the actress from uh, uh, Top Gun, whatever her name is. Okay. I see it in uh, Cry Freedom, Steve Biko, about one of the most important figures in apartheid history, anti-apartheid history, but he's relegated to a supporting actor. I mean, we do, you cannot go to Hollywood to rely on them to educate you or be accurate because their primary job is to entertain their audience. 
as soon as we realized that we won't rely on movies. I mean, I'm, I, 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 I'm not that much of a fan even of uh, Black Panther. Um, it took me, I probably saw it a year after it came out. Not because I didn't respect the filmmakers, but it's very difficult for me to look at a movie that is being made and I'm not knocking the actors in it or the directors. I'm, not, I'm just saying purely from a perspective of history and, and, and even contemporary history that we're talking about a fictional nation uh, in a universe created by a, a white man who makes comics, who... Uh, if if I if I remember from the history when the book when the first comics Marvel, uh, comics came out of Black Panther it was around the time of the Black Panther Party for self defense, so he's essentially jumping on the bandwagon, and trying to make something to appease a section of the audience. He's not really interested in telling history accurately. Black Panther is a is a you know Ryan Coogler for me, I respect the hell out of that man as a filmmaker and he works in an industry and i i recognize people who work in the industry because they have to work it's their job i'm just saying from those of us on the outside whenever it comes to africa we can never rely on truth and i don't think it's any different to people in the united states of america african-americans afro-brazilians have the same problem afro-caribbeans have the same problem Every black person around the world has a problem with what is being depicted of themselves. But by the way, Americans don't even tell the truth about their history. You go and watch 300, which is partially mentioned in the Old Testament of the Bible, 300. They go and romanticize the film. You go and watch Gandhi, made by uh, Richard Attenborough. Is it David Attenborough, Richard Attenborough? One of them. Richard Attenborough directed it, starring Ben Kingsley. Gandhi, Gandhi's book talks about these are my experimentations with the truth. He's even telling you, I'm not even writing the truth. And they go and make a movie about it. It's not accurate. Uh, 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 and I can go on and on and on and on. They will go and continue making things. They're not accurate even about their own history. So you can never take it personal. I think you have to take it as art and entertainment. And that is the reason why I will go and see The Woman King, because it's, it's art and entertainment. I respect the, 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 the art that is being put into it, but I'm not expecting to be educated by it. As a matter of fact, movies that were made 50, 60 years ago in the Hollywood system were closer to the truth than what they make now. You got to watch some of those older movies. They would at least stick to the source material for the most part. You know? You wouldn't try and make Malcolm X a dark-skinned chocolate man, you know? Even Spike Lee. I mean, he, the film is part, partially fiction. You know, the people that you read his uh, autobiography by Malcolm X, as told to Alex Haley, the people that, that, that brought him to the Nation of Islam are not, it's not one guy. It's, in fact, they talk about his brother is the one who brought him in, in prison. But the, the film is, it, it's, you have to make the film make sense in the for the audience. So they will take four characters, make them into one. It happens. You cannot expect these people to educate you. So that's my opinion on uh, on the movie. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that. The reason, and, and I know the reason why Hollywood does that what they do because they know a lot of young people 
or don't know the truth, don't have the truth. And like, like fast instance, a lot of people, uh, this generation now, uh, the parents don't really, really, they educated either. They've been educated by the system that's mm-hmm. whitewashed. Uh, they're not going to do their research, but they also understand that entertainment and television is a psychological program that goes to the subconscious. Absolutely. And they, and they know that some people can't, don't know the difference between uh, entertainment and reality. And just like the video games, you see video games and movies, people trying to react and, 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 and duplicate what they see on TV or some music video. And they use it in terms of former brainwashing and things of that nature. Like I said, a lot of parents, like a lot of people like in America, like as of right now, those most of them is not educated to the level you are to understand the difference between what's true and not true. Mm-hmm. And, and then when people like you, uh, the reason I interview come out and say, Hey, this is not right. This is not true. Uh, and they start speaking. That's why I brought you on here to start speaking against that to people. Like you said, they need to understand the difference between entertainment and what's really true. And exactly. but when when you when when you but people don't Hollywood don't like when people come out and tell the truth about their movies mm. and, and spread the truth is not true because their their friends go mess up their bottom line which is money. Absolutely, absolutely. And we don't care, but we do need to have this young generation understand what's true and ain't true. Because a lot of people when they see films like those, they look at it like a documentary, so to speak, even though it's entertainment. Yeah, and then uh they'll assume that it's true and then the people who uh black people who are of age in their 30s and 40s who might not know the truth might not know the difference they're not going to uh really educate on what's really will separate the weak from the terror so to speak the lie from the deception they don't know because a lot of people is not educated like i said america the system can't be trusted even in public school there's certain so-called truth what they call truth in the public school they tell people and then you go to college that certain times true like i said westernized Western work controls and dictate what they consider as truth for you to to learn in school mm. and from colleges. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Unless they dig deep instead of the history like you have done. Mm. So, uh, Mr. Wara, uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, we're going to talk about some other things you were talking about. We're going to talk about some of the, the magics and stuff that's and later on, essentially about the magics and, you know, and stuff. They, they labeled this stuff evil. Which you know, a lot of people don't believe in the devil, and they try to kill off people who did those practices as well. You you know that too, especially in this world, because they didn't want them to practice those things. And you know, oppress you know that belief system is evil. We're gonna talk about that, and so also we will talk about the uh, Black Panther or Black Panther Two coming out. So we also break that down as well uh, when you get a chance to see um, Black Panther. Now I don't think there's a whole lot we need to talk about the Hummer King when you. Um, but um, like you said about Black Panther, I'm glad you mentioned it too. Uh, can you hear me? You froze up. Can you hear me? Hold on. Um, hello. Yeah, I'm yeah, froze up. <laughs> In okay. that it froze okay. up. Did, could you hear what I say? Do you do I blink out? Uh, no. I you 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 uh you I lost you for about a twenty five okay. seconds. Okay, I was talking about that, like you did the Black Panther. You have seen some and talked about it, and you are pointing out 
that it's just a film sensationalizing how fiction characters and all that stuff, how people kept yeah. off. But they also like I think they also kept the fun thing they kept off off the of the backs of black people to give people this this sense of hope of yeah. a better future. They're making a lot of money off of black people knowing they weren't oh, gonna see course. the movie. Of yeah. course, yeah. Of course. I and I get it. I get yeah. it. And there's listen, <laughs> you know, I I just think we also need to uh you know, because we, we, you know, unfortunately, Hollywood is still also the number one entertainment arena when it comes to filmmaking in the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, until what we have something competing with it, you know, unfortunately, we have to play by their rules. And that's just the reality. You yeah. know, you just have to play by their rules. Of course, you can make your own. But, you know, I give you examples of film industries around the world that are mostly black. My country, Nigeria, has the biggest film industry black film industry in the world mm-hmm. you know but the stuff i must be honest with you the stuff we're making because we are also part of that de-education the stuff that we're making is em- trying to emulate what the, the west exactly that's the problem so we're not really trying we're not really there are a handful of filmmakers that are really freezing up their culture uh-huh. You know, there, there are a handful of filmmakers that are looking into their culture. And I would advise people, if you want to really study African uh, film, there are some filmmakers you could look out for. Usman Semben, for, for a start. Jibril uh, uh, Diop Mambeti. These are Senegalese filmmakers who really tried to show their culture at the time. Um, uh, Idrissa Wadrago. You know, these are people that made films in African languages about African history, African culture. They made some fantastic films. You know, I did a, 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 my master's degree, my thesis was on these people and, and how they made their films and why they made their films. Go and look at those films if you want to learn about African culture. You want to watch historical films that are kind of fiction, but based off history. Go watch some of their films. Uh, and there are many more. I mean, I, I can't go into, into uh, how many there are, but there, there are several films. But Usman Semben, Jibril Diop Mambeti, uh, Idrissa Wadrago, uh, um, uh, a few of them actually. But I'll again, it's very late where I am. It's nearly eleven o'clock, so right. I, I apologize. My brain is <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yeah, because I figured let you go. We a perfect timing, man. Uh, how you pronounce the name? Or war? Or war? Onora Abwa. Onora Onora. In my Onora. language, Ono or his mouth. Ora is like the public or the people. So my father gave me that name. You know, we have a, a, a process of naming, as you know, it's an African-American thing that you inherited too. Importance of naming. My father named me as mouth of the people, people spokesperson. That's the name they gave me. Um, so Onora, you think about it like that. Ono means mouth, Ora, people. That's a great name for you living up to that name too as well. <laughs> I hope so, my brother. I hope so. And so my best. When if you want uh, a copy of this, uh see if I can give you a, a whole copy of this video. Okay, thank you. And then you can put in some of your documents or have you want to use it, put in your website, whatever. Um, but I really appreciate the opportunity to the interview, man, uh, and your a wide range of knowledge and understanding of, of the truth or what really happened. And I'm glad that people like you still tell the truth. Who's still standing, standing firm on on actually getting real information and not watered down information. So, as well, also with answers for some links on your sites, I would like I said, I would put a display where everybody can go look at your channel, look at some of the uh, videos and, and documentaries that you have already done. Uh, so, I want to thank also the audience as well to uh, also thank you for watching uh, Andrew Love. 
uh, on YouTube, and also you can have a podcast as well. As well, it's, uh, no Andrew Love uh, podcast is also. So I want to thank everybody who's viewing and, and tuning in. Please click and share and subscribe to the channel as well, and also subscribe to his channel as well. Uh, I think it's called uh, what's it called? What's the A-E-A name? AEA Films. AEA Films. Initial A, initial E, initial A Films. A-E-A yeah, AEA Films. You see, it's also in the description box of this uh, video as well. Uh, in description as well so y'all gonna click on this channel and uh view it to give brother some shout outs or whatever and take your time and then go through some of this, this the stuff he had put on there and really listen to it and pay attention and some of them may be a little long but hey if you have to stop take a break let's the rest of the next day do it and also educate your kids as well uh so i really thank you sir thank you for coming on to this platform and i was uh share the link i already shared the link to you on whatsapp that uh, you can uh watch it and so forth and so I really want to thank you for coming on the program. Thank you for the opportunity. And I will interview you later on where we can set some more time to talk about other things as well. Uh, a lot of the uh, misunderstanding of spirituality and things. Of that nature. And the project. I hope you get one on Netflix, man. I think you do got enough, uh, good enough documentation to be on Netflix. Have you thought about that? Yeah, I mean, it's Netflix, tend, they you are, they reach out to you. So it, the fact that they haven't means it's not for them. So, you know, we, we, we'll we wait and see. Maybe in the next one. Who knows? <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I don't know how Netflix... I know some people actually do a film and try to pitch it to Netflix, and I think that's where you can pitch it to them, see if they're going to take it, if they're going to like it, because there's so many films out there. I don't know yeah. how they go about Net- doing Netflix, it. Netflix in the last uh, five, or, five or six years has focused largely on original content. They don't really acquire that much anymore. Because they they have a monopoly of the industry, the streaming world, so they oh, make wow. more originals, and that's why they're under pressure so much. I think uh, was it just a few weeks ago they fired about how many thousand staff did they fire? Because there's so much pressure, you have to get it right, you know. So that's why they're producing TV shows every week, films every week. It's just constant. They're throwing money at it, but ultimately, I think things will level out yeah. because. The, they're not always making the best anymore i think they're uh, not <laughs> you know uh, so so they're having to stop and focus on what can we do and i think when the time is right the you know there will be there, but there was also the other the other platforms that are emerging too you know uh, okay some of my documentary stream on an islamic platform based out of la actually my islamic content okay because uh, i have some documentaries about islam and how it came to africa and so you know it's it's uh you just have to take your time. I think this thing is, it's, you play the long game rather than the short one, you know? Yeah, but you'll be out there soon. People catch on to you. Thank you. They are. Thank and you. I so keep on doing your work. Somebody going to catch on. But people get tired of being lied to and they're going to look for truth. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah. So yeah. thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you all for watching the broadcast. And man, thank you. Salute to you. Uh, thank you. Um, for really, really thank you for coming on here, man. And we'll do more work and we'll we'll talk later. And so thank you. Thank you for everyone tuning in. And also, um, yes, yes, yes. Thank you. And um, be safe, be prosperous, and keep doing what you're doing.